All right. Beloved, we're going to start reading now um, at a minute before nine. It's, it's, we have to read this entire text so that we have time to finish chapter eight today. Let's pray and I'll, I'll read the text. Father God, we thank you, glorious Lord, for this beautiful day. Another Lord's Day for which we are privileged to gather. I'm here in this hour. I, I pray that you will give me the ability to communicate your truth with clarity by the power of your spirit for your people, your dear saints, to grasp, understand, see the fulfillment of these things before us. Prepare us for worship together this day, we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Daniel 8. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam, and I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal, or Ulai, whichever you prefer. Now, quickly, um, Susa or Sushan was 230 miles um, east of ancient Babylon, um, and here... The Uli was an artificial canal just a few miles um, from Susa. Daniel is a lot not likely there physically, but this is in the vision that God gave him. He sees himself there in the vision. All right? Verse 3, Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beasts could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power, but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had the two horns which I had seen standing in front of the canal and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram. He was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty... The large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, toward the east, toward the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on the account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice. It will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said, to that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. 
When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the, of the Uli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Question, end of what? Now, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright. He said, behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. Time of the end, not the end of time. So end of what? Keep reading. Then the the ram, which you saw, with the two horns represents the kings of of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. In the latter period of their rule, friends, that end is what he's talking about. When the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled and intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power, and he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people, and through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence, and he will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. The vision of the evenings and mornings which has been told is true. Keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. That is, over three and a half centuries into the future. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business. But I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. This ends the reading of God's word. Now remember now, um, the first six books of Daniel are historical, um, a court narrative of the Babylonian Empire. Entering into chapter 7, we change genres um, to politic, um, um, apo- political, apocalyptic, I was thinking political courts, into apocalyptic literature, which requires um, a change in reading strategy. Amen? We have this principle down. The nature of apocalyptic is metaphor-rich. It's a metaphor-rich genre, symbolism. So to say it again, beloved, regarding the time of focus of Daniel and his prophecies is from the time of exile, the time of exile, Judah, Israel, into exile, and up to the coming of Messiah. Up to the coming of Messiah. We saw in chapters 2 and 7 that there will be four kingdoms between those eras. Amen? In the vision or in the dream given to Nebuchadnezzar of that great colossal figure represents four kingdoms, not five kingdoms. Up to the coming of 
the Son of Man. He is the stone cut out of the mountain without hands that crushes and crashes up against this image and it all comes falling down. That stone is Jesus, the Christ, Son of the living God. These are four kingdoms, four Gentile nations, four beasts, Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, and the fourth, Rome. Rome. Now, we investigated the details of Rome last time, for which Daniel wanted to know about back in chapter 7, verses 19 to 21. Remember, he wanted to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast with ten horns on its head, which represents incredible power. And he wanted to know about the little horn, which boasts great things and waged war on the saints, And that is, as we learned, the era of the Caesars and their self-proclaimed deity. Amen. All right. In chapter 8, the focus is not on the fourth kingdom, but a focus here on the second and particularly the third kingdoms that have been described through dreams and visions and images of colossal figures and, and so on. So what's particularly in focus is the third kingdom and its latter days. That is the latter days of this, the third kingdom, and the grievous persecution that will come upon God's people at the end of their history, the third kingdom. Very important. And the culmination of that third kingdom um, is, the third kingdom is Greece, after which... We see four small kingdoms that come out of the first king's kingdom. The first king you'll see is Alexander the Great. When he's done, four kingdoms arise. And chiefly what's in perspective here is the little horn, which represents one of those four kingdoms that comes out of Alexander the Great's kingdom, Greece. Little horn. It was very important for Daniel to understand that this vision refers to the end of the days of the small horn. The small horn, as we shall see, is Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus IV, referred to as Epiphanes, which we'll see what that means. So the time of the end, friends, in this text, is not the end of history, but is the end of this particular vision, this vision being Daniel 8, and the restoration of the temple, and the rebuilding of the altar, and renewal of daily sacrifices for sin in that temple. That's what this is about. So, as I said a few weeks ago, critical scholars in our day say that Daniel's prophecy is far too accurate to have been given three and a half centuries prior to the events foretold. They refuse to accept miraculous predictive prophecy. So they argue that some unnamed Jew living in Judah, writing as the prophet Daniel, they say that he, he composed this book at some point shortly after the Maccabean revolt of 167 B.C. Because again, the predictions are so, so accurate. Now think back in our country 400 years ago. In the early 1600s, 
when our forefathers were just settling in. They were just settling here. Think about a prediction. For them to hear a prediction in detail about events that will happen in America written down in apocalyptic-styled writing. When they came to pass, would we not be absolutely amazed? Of course we would. Let's say we read this, for instance, in the 1600s. Okay, listen carefully. Apocalyptic literature. Listen, some of you will remember this exercise from our study in the book of Revelation. The crescent moon, mooned larger. While the eagle slept, two silver birds flew over the wall and tore into the apple. The great and the small, the finest and the bravest perished. Ashes to ashes, from dust to dust, the bull and the bear stood still as the smoke rose from the twisted steel mountain. Its number is 911. What is that? That's from Janine Constantino, by the way, and I added to that. That describes September 11, 2001, in apocalyptic-styled literature. The crescent moon moon larger, Islam. The eagle slept, America. Two silver birds flew into the wall. Two jet airliners flew in at, into Wall Street, into the Apple, New York City. The great and small, finest and bravest, the policemen, the fire departments of New York City perished, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, the twisted steel mountain, the twin towers, and so on. 9-11. Imagine reading that September 12th, 2001. Amen? They understood apocalyptic literature incredibly well. So here's Daniel, given this very bizarre vision, He's perplexed, and he seeks, therefore, the meaning of the vision. Friends, if you, if, if you read Scripture and you're perplexed, take Daniel's example. <laughs> read it, read it carefully, seek, pray, and you will likely understand. So here, the visions given to Daniel show, once again, four Gentile kingdoms that rule up until the coming of Messiah. That is the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Many today have read so much apocalyptic fiction that talks about a revived Rome at the end of history. Many see that a revived Rome will, will carry with it a future antichrist, which again makes this vision a fifth kingdom. That's a fifth kingdom. And I'm telling you, it's not here. You have to put it here. And if you put it here, you're placing it here because of certain prophetic presuppositions that you have in your mind, the inventions of men. So we must study carefully. The, the plain reading of this text does not allow for that, a fifth kingdom. So this morning, we're going to look at the vision, and then we're going to jump over and see what the interpretation says I'm giving, given to Daniel here. Notice first, Gabriel is sent from God. Verse 16, he's one of two angels named in Scripture. Who's the other one? Hmm? Michael. Michael, Gabriel. Here, Gabriel, a special messenger of God. Remember, he's the one who came to Mary and Joseph to announce the coming of God's son, the birth of his son. You shall 
Call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin, right? Jesus means Yahweh saves. So here Daniel's vision predicts the coming of Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, some 350 years into the future. Now, this little horn, Daniel 8, this little horn is not the same horn figure associated with the fourth beast in the vision given in chapter 7. This is a different horn. Again, this is apocalyptic literature. This is describing something. And today, it's describing Antiochus Epiphanes. And no doubt, Antiochus, in this, an offshoot of the, of the, of the third kingdom, certainly anticipates the rise of Little Horn, who shows up in the fourth kingdom. And that represents the self-proclaimed um, emperor deities of Rome. The Little Horn we looked at last time. It's not the same horn. It's another vision of another kingdom, this being the second and particularly the third. Okay, so here, let's look at the ram, verse 3. He sees a ram. Now, we're told in verse 20, right, this ram of verse 3, we're told in verse 20, are the, notice, kings of Media and Persia. Okay, showing us that the second kingdom is a combined people. The second kingdom is a combined people. The Medes and the Persians. Now, the reason I say this is because some interpreters take the four kingdoms of Daniel as Babylon, Media, Persia, and the fourth kingdom being Greece. Not Rome. I believe that this, once again, this vision here, shows us that that is an incorrect way of reading the text. Because we see here that the second kingdom, one ram, one ram, second kingdom, are the kings of Media and Persia. That is a people. Okay? So this kingdom, remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the great image? This kingdom represents the chest and arms of silver in chapter 2. Head of gold, chest and arms of silver, Legs of bronze, right? And then steel and steel mixed with clay. So this is the chest and arms of silver in chapter 2. Um, this kingdom is the bear or the beast of chapter 7, verse 5. Notice, the ram has two horns, Media and Persia, one horn longer than the other, and it came up last or later, verse 3. The longer horn came up later, verse 3. Now, historically, the Medes and the Persians weren't always friends. The Medes were a dominant people, people later supplanted by the Persians who came to dominate that mixed kingdom. The Persians came to dominate. Notice also, each horn stands for the office of king the office of king. So you have kings, plural. Remember our study in chapter 7? We argued that the little horn is not an individual, but it's an office, and in chapter 7, it was the office of the Caesars. Here, notice, one horn, kings of Media. The other horn stands for the kings of Persia. 
So the Medes and the Persians here are represented by a ram. That's the vision. The ram is Media and Persia, a mixed people, which makes up the second kingdom. First Babylon, then comes the Persians, Media, Persia, who conquered Babylon. And notice they come from the east. I saw the ram butting westward, northward, and southward. Okay, Those directions include Judah in the west, Asia Minor in the north, Egypt in the south. No other beast could stand against this ram. He did as he pleased, verse 4, and he magnified himself. The Persians, they also declared, as most kingdoms did, that their king was divine. Their king was a god, the supreme lawgiver of all mankind. So he sees himself as great. He magnifies himself. So the second kingdom, Media, Persia, they ruled from 539 BC when they conquered Babylon. Remember Belshazzar's feast? Handwriting on the wall. He died that night. Media, Persia came in and took over. And they ruled until 331 BC. From 539 to 331, when they were finally defeated by the Greeks. Okay, so Persia, generally speaking, treated the Israelites quite well. Remember King Cyrus, it's under Cyrus that they're able to go back and rebuild the temple wall or the walls of Jerusalem and the temple and so on. But that will drastically change when the next kingdom the male goat takes control. The male goat is Greece, the third kingdom that comes and conquers Media, Persia. Are you with me? <laughs> okay, now what does Daniel describe? He described that Babylon will fall, Babylon fell. Media, Media Persia comes in, they take over. Next comes Greece, and out of Greece comes a little horn, small horn. Okay, so in verses 5 through 8, and in verses 21 and 22, we have the vision and its interpretation of this male goat that is coming. Notice, okay, this is Greece. Look, the horn between its eyes is its first king, Verse 21, the male goat in this day was a symbol of deity, a symbol of deity. And what's interesting, this is a side note, what's interesting is that the Hebrew word for demon is sa'ir, sa'ir, that's the word. And it also is the word for male goat. Listen to the words given by God through Moses to Israel in Leviticus 17.7. They, the Israelites, shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demon with which they play the harlot. Context there, he was talking about the Israelites' participation with the Can wicked Canaanites in their very evil worship services 
in paganism. And the Israelites associated themselves with foreigners on many occasions, which are not even proper to mention um, in our time here. Very perverse. Now, in Greek mythology, the, the satyr, pronounced S-T-S-A-T-Y-R, I think that's how you pronounce it, the satyr, was um, a woodland deity, you'll remember this from Greek mythology, with short horns, pointed ears, the head and body of a man, and the legs of a goat. It was the god of lust and unrestrained sex. And this is what God warns against with regard to these Israelites. And remember, all, all pagan nations before Christ were ruled by demonic forces. Every single one of them. All heathen lands were ruled by demonic forces. So, this male goat, they reveal themselves um, as the last part of this empire's age, the, the third kingdom. Okay, notice the first king of Greece was Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, he's the first king. He was a man of unusual intelligence, incredible intelligence, this guy. One of the greatest military geniuses in history, conquering the world in 12 years. He began at the age of 21, and he died at the age of 33. Actually, just days before his 33rd birthday, he died in Babylon, of all places. Alexander the Great. Now, the Greeks hated the Persians, and they came at them with great fury. The Greeks came with great fury towards Medea, Persia, and destroyed their army, taking control of the nations in that area at that time. Okay? Verse 5. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him with his mighty wrath. That is to say, Alexander the Great achieved unparalleled domination in an unbelievable amount of time. Thus, he came without touching the ground. That's the idea. He comes without touching the ground. He is the great horn who struck down the ram, shattering its two horns, verse 7. Media, Persia. Here comes Alexander the Great, the first king, Greece. But, verse 8, as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, speaking of Alexander's death. Alexander dies. He is the great horn, verse 21, the king of Greece, the first king, died 12 years after taking power, conquering the known world. He, he, he was laid low by a fever and died. A fever. <laughs> and scripture gives him very little space. And we're reminded of, of the greatest of men are so perishable. He holds your breath in his, in his hand. Alexander's dead. We're all one virus away from death. Amen? But the grace of God in Christ Jesus, for we will live forever. 
So Alexander's um, empire remained strong for upward of a century after his death. Verse 8, in its place, that kingdom, Greece, under Alexander the Great, came up four conspicuous, that is bold, brilliant, striking horns toward the four winds of heaven. This is a prophecy of the rise of four smaller kingdoms and the divvying up of the Greek empire. Are you with me? They were. They were. Alexander died. His kingdom divided into four parts. The, the Ptolemies, they took control of Judah and Jerusalem. The, the Ptolemies were basically Hellenized Egyptians, Greek-cultured Egyptians, the Ptolemies. They had very little interest, really, in Judah, in Jerusalem. They didn't have much interest there at all. So while they ruled Jerusalem, there was um, a season of relative peace for the Israelites. And then in 198 BC, a Seleucid king, a Seleucid king, Antiochus III came into power and he drove out the Ptolemies, ruling one of the four subdivisions of Alexander the Great's empire. And that is he ruled up to the northeast end of Judah. Alexander III. Verse nine, out of one of them came a fourth a rather small horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward the beautiful land. Beautiful land is Israel. The small horn here, friends, is the focus of the vision. This small horn is now the focus of Daniel 8. And this was very significant for the Jews who were in exile when Daniel writes this, to know and to understand about the events that will occur in 175 to 163 BC. There is one who will become a great persecutor of the Jews. The Jews who, notice here, are referred to as the host of heaven. Host means army. Israel was God's host, his army on earth. And here comes one who will try to destroy them. And this small horn, verse 10, noticed, caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth. Again, this is apocalyptic language, friends. Symbolic. Some of the stars to fall to the earth and it trampled them down. Look down at the last part of verse 24. He will destroy mighty men and holy people. Host and stars. Stars probably represent God's most prominent leaders. Daniel will go on to say in his final vision in Daniel 12 verse 3, that those who win souls are like the stars of heaven. It's also a visionary way of describing cosmic war shown to us in Daniel 10 and in Revelation chapter 12 uh, where, where we see the results of the cosmic war and it's God's people being crushed underfoot. So it's obvious, little horn, chapter eight, 
is not the same little horn of chapter 7. Amen? It should be obvious. So many interpreters today, I'm telling you, and this is from premillennial dispensationalism, they deduce that it's the same little horn and they somehow make it out to be some future end of history antichrist. Friends, that's not possible. It's not possible. This is elementary, my dear Watson. Chapter 7, little horn arises out of the fourth beast. In chapter 8, it arises out of the, the third. This horn arises in the latter days of the kingdom of Greece, not the end of the world. It is. Many people are heavily affected by premillennial dispensationalism. Simply read the text. You don't want to be someone who says, don't bother me with the facts, I believe what I believe. Study the text. And this is a guy who has many premillennial dispensational friends. Antiochus, in 167 B.C., sought diligently to Hellenize the Jews, demanding that they give up their Jewish culture, they give up their worship for Greek culture and worship of Greek gods. Antiochus. The Jews revolted, leading to what we know as the Maccabean Revolt from 167 to 160 BC. Antiochus Epiphanes and the Maccabean Wars are the historical background for the Jewish holiday known as Hanukkah, the Feast of Lights. Or better yet, it means, re, it means dedication. Better yet, rededication. Jesus in the Gospel of John went to the Feast of Dedication in the winter. Remember that? Rededication. So this man is part of the third kingdom of prophecy, Greece, who rose up out of one of the four conspicuous horns, the Seleucid dynasty that ruled Syria and Judah. And their latter end, the latter end of their kingdom, verse 23, kingdom of the four horns, at this point in time, Rome was beginning to flex her muscles. We'll see this as I read some history from Josephus in just a little bit. Rome was starting to flex her muscles at this point. And the Seleucids were the last holdout. Verse 11. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. It removed the regular sacrifice from him. And the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. On account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn, along with the regular sacrifice. It will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said, that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror? So as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. 
Notice verse 11, it even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. Who's the commander of the host? Jesus Christ. You remember in Joshua chapter 5, we read of a, of a figure there described as the commander of the Lord's army. Who's that? It is a pre-incarnate vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. Identified by Daniel here as the commander of the host, identified in verse 25 as the prince of princes, the eternal second person of the Godhead, Jesus, who becomes God's Christ in a human body. Beautiful. Antiochus, whose nickname was Epiphanes, means God made manifest. Epiphany. He banned Sabbath observance and he banned circumcision throughout the land of Israel. He also ordered that a statue of Zeus be erected in the temple. And in that courtyard, he had his priests sacrificing pigs to Zeus on the altar of sacrifice. And that altar was a sacrifice before Yahweh. Okay, now remember who's allowing this. Who preordained this to happen? Yahweh, because of the transgressors. The transgressors are Israel, the Israelites who gave themselves to pagan practices and were carried off with pagan worship, and God comes and he judges them. They're the transgressors. So there, apparently history tells us that the, the face of this statue actually resembled Antiochus himself, which is a direct challenge to the authority of the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man, second person of the Godhead, and or the ancient of days, God, the Father, forgive me, and the Son of Man, his Son. The ancient of days is the Father. One like the Son of Man is the Son. We've already studied that. They desecrate the temple. They desecrate it. Antiochus. This is a direct attack on Yahweh himself. So that makes Antiochus truly an antichrist figure. Wouldn't you say? Without a doubt. So this small horn's effect, God allows, that is God ordained, to succeed for a time. Josephus the historian in Jewish Antiquities book 12 writes this. King Antiochus, returning out of Egypt for fear of the Romans, that's what I mean by Rome was starting to flex her muscles, made an expedition against the city of Jerusalem. He left the temple bare. He took away the golden candlesticks and the golden altar, that is of incense, and table of showbread, and the altar, that is the burnt offering, and did not abstain from even the veils in the temple which were made of fine linen and scarlet. He also emptied it of its secret treasures and left nothing at all remaining and by this means cast the Jews into great lamentation. For he forbade them to offer those daily sacrifices which they used to offer to God according to the law. And when the king had built an idol altar upon God's altar, he slew swine upon it. He also commanded them not to circumcise their sons and threatened to punish any that should be found to have transgressed his injunction. 
And indeed, many Jews there were who complied with the king's commands either voluntarily or out of fear of the penalty that was denounced. But the best men and those of the noblest souls did not regard him, but did pay a greater respect for the customs of their country than concern as to the punishment which he threatened to the disobedient. For they were whipped with rods, their bodies were torn to pieces, they were... They also strangled those women and their sons whom they had circumcised as the king had appointed hanging their dead sons around their neck. Antiochus Epiphanes. And if there were any sacred book of the law found, it was destroyed and those with whom they were found miserably perished also. End of quote. Verse 13. How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply? While the transgression causes horror, so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled, he said to me for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. So that is to say that the Lord himself sets a limit to the horn's action. It's just short of seven years, 2,300 days, just short of seven years. Now, since morning, okay, follow me. Since morning and evening would make it 2,300, that is morning and evening sacrifices, two a day, divide that by two and you have 1,550 days, just over three years. Symbolically speaking, time, times and half a time, three and a half years, 1,400, you know, all those symbols regarding a temporary time of tribulation. Temporary time of tribulation. Yahweh allowed Antiochus to disrupt the sacrifices for just over three years before the sanctuary, verse 14, was properly restored as it was by Judas Maccabeus and the Maccabean revolt in 164 BC. Judas Maccabeus. So here, in verse 23, in the latter period of their rule, that is the latter period of Greece, and this little horn that comes out of the four divided kingdoms out of Greece, when the transgressors have run their course. Transgressors, not talking about Antiochus, not about the Gentiles, but he's referring to the Jews. Because what was going on in Israel at this time was great apostasy, a great falling away. They had become Hellenized. They were practicing idolatry. They abandoned themselves to the unbelieving customs, false belief customs of pagan nations. Great falling away. And here God sends severe persecution, unparalleled until, unparalleled until the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD, for which Jesus foretold, we looked at it last time in Mark's gospel, chapter 13. A time of great tribulation. But he, verse 25, the small horn will be broken without human Agency. That is to say, he will not fall by the sword of man. God will strike him from within. Again, Josephus, 
Now the context here, this record of Josephus, is when Antiochus was being defeated by his enemies, learning the crushing news after crushing news of the crumbling of his power, Josephus records this. Quote, when this concern about these affairs was added to the former, he was confounded. And by the anxiety that he was in, he fell into distemper, which, as it lasted a great while, and his pains increased upon him. So he at length perceived he should die in a little time. So he called his friends to him and told them that his distemper was severe upon him and confessed with all that this calamity was sent upon him for the miseries he brought up upon the Jewish nation while he plundered their temple and scorned their God. And he had said this, when he said this, he gave up the ghost and went to hell without human agency. Verse 26, the vision of the evenings and mornings, which, which has been told is true, but keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. Seal it up. In other words, preserve the vision until the time. Why? Because those living in that time will draw strength from it. They will draw strength from the vision, knowing that I, Yahweh, am in control and what's happening here is not outside of my sovereign decree. They can find encouragement. So overwhelming and confusing to Daniel at this point, but not to those living at this time. It would have served as encouragement to them, believe it or not. And people like historians of the Maccabees and Josephus, they marvel. They marvel at the incredible fulfillment that took place of this vision given to Daniel with regard to Antiochus Epiphanes. So notice verse 27, I was exhausted and sick for days. I can only imagine. So first, he would have been exhausted by the intensity of the vision Second, he would have been sick, no doubt, because of the grief of a future great apostasy and the great persecution that would fall upon his people. Here we have the providential miracle of predictive prophecy given to Daniel by Yahweh himself. Daniel 8. Read it carefully, read it carefully, and we shall understand. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for history and that as you have decreed in eternity past all that will come to pass, it has come to pass and it still comes to pass. We look forward to your glorious return to judge the world and to gather your saints, a new heaven and a new earth. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray for the glory of the name above all names. Amen.